Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning. Let's read from uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of his spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is God's word. Well, this is the time of year uh, where, for many of us, the good feelings of Christmas come. Um, and I know some of you, some, it's, it's a, maybe a season of mixed emotions, but certainly we talk about uh, the feelings of Christmas, the Christmas spirit, all that stuff being in the air. And so I thought I'd give you a little quiz. You probably know the answers already. Oh, yeah, junior highs, you guys, you guys got to go. You, you've got it. All right. Thought, man, I, it normally takes me 20 minutes to offend people. That was fast. Um, so here's a little quiz for you on, on the good feelings of Christmas, and maybe you connect with all of these, but I, these are easy, okay? What's, what's the first one there? It's a blessing and a curse. Baked goods, yes, of course. Second, putting up, decorations, okay? We're actually taking down lights apparently today because I did a bad job of them a couple years ago. Um, number three on the list, carols, excluding Santa baby, of course. That is not a carol. Um, and of course... We all don't like to say it, but come on. Presents, yes. And then time with, yes, which for some, they want to last forever, others don't. Um, two notables that didn't make my list anyways. Uh, two degrees and rainy. It's not, uh, not good Christmas feeling. And fruitcake. Can we just be honest about that? Right? Yeah. I know. Some of you after are going to try to convince me otherwise, but I'm telling you. Um, this is the series we're in Advent, we're calling Feels Like Christmas, because there is a lot of the conversation this time of year of the Christmas spirit and, and the good feelings. And I think if you look at maybe a lot of the Christmas movies, the old ones, the new ones, a lot of them are not just about, in fact, many of them say it's not just about the good feelings of you know, food and, and, and tradition and family and presence, but actually that we're meant to have sort of a, a Christmas spirit towards others that it should be a time of year where there's benevolence, charity, where maybe, um, you know, th uh, grudges are forgiven and, and, and people come together again. And there's this sense of, like, mercy as being one of the sort of the dominant feelings. And if you think about some of the old, the famous ones, whether it was a, a Christmas Carol or a, uh, It's a Wonderful Life or uh, The Grinch, um, but even some of the modern ones that we watch with our kids, a lot of them have this theme in them. And certainly that's a good thing, that it's beyond just about, you know, it's more blessed to, to give than to receive, and this theme of having uh, goodwill towards other people. It is a time of year, 
uh, often where people choose to give money to others, to charity, or others are trying to raise that because there is that sort of Christmas spirit in the air. And all of that is good, but there's, there's a bit of complexity to our feelings of mercy this time of year, um, partly because we have to ask ourselves, well, why, why do we only feel that a couple weeks a year? You know, the, the Christmas spirit that results in sort of charity towards others and goodwill, and maybe this is a time of year, you know, for amnesty or forgiving of old debts, we kind of have to say, well, why don't we, is that just a feeling that we sort of ride for a couple of weeks because of the season, because of tradition? How come it doesn't last longer than that? And I think one of the things that I have realized in my own life when it comes to charity or mercy towards others, um, that sometimes that's motivated by guilt. Like if I become aware of a need, or certainly this time of year as people are trying to make others aware of the great need, there is this feeling of guilt, like, oh, I have so much, or life is so easy for me, or whatever, I should help those people, or that person, or that country, or that situation. And so appeals often happen, often they're tied to sort of crisis, and so there is a, a feeling of mercy, but oftentimes that's motivated by guilt, and so if I can do that, then I can feel better about enjoying the life that I have, and then I don't have to feel so guilty. And guilt is a fairly effective short-term motivator, right? Uh, all of our parents used it on this. Uh, but it has, it has some short-term effects, and so sometimes our mercy towards others comes out of feeling guilty. We feel bad, we feel bad that it hadn't happened to us, and so we should. Um, sometimes it's motivated by pride, where we want to be able to say, well, look what I've done. You know, I've done this, and some of us maybe pursue an identity, even though we're not aware of it, of saying, well, I'm benevolent, I'm charitable to others, and maybe we would want other people to know, or we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't mind if they found out that we were sort of merciful. And so we look below the surface, and you say, VJ, that's kind of a cynical attitude towards mercy, but oftentimes we find that when we try to help others, and this is kind of a clue sometimes that maybe mercy has a little bit of a weak uh, motivation or what's fueling mercy in our lives maybe is, is actually guilt or pride, is when we try to help others and they don't receive our help. Or when we try to help others and it's harder than we thought to help them. Not, not because it costs us something, but it's like it's actually hard to make a difference. It's actually hard to help. And sometimes we get annoyed at someone to think, well, how come they're not grateful for the help that I gave, or how come this is so hard to do? Why we're trying to do this mercy thing? I'm trying to help, like, and sometimes that just exposes the fact that I'm actually annoyed because I just wanted to get this burden off me. And why is this so difficult to do? Or I was hoping to sort of appease some feelings that I have, and we realize this whole giving and receiving of mercy is a little bit more complicated than we thought. And yet, certainly, we're in a world, in a sense, we we might, and I've heard this word used to describe what's going on in our world right now, that there's chaos in the world right now. And yet, as we said you know, a couple weeks ago, there really isn't more chaos now than there was a year ago, or 10 years ago, or 50 years ago. Things happen and spike into the public sphere and into the media who grabs hold of something that makes us aware of actually something that we don't want to admit, which is there's a need for this all over the world all the time. But that even though after a period of time and CNN and CBC will move on, the need for mercy is still there. And yet much of our benevolence and giving will spike with a crisis and with a need. But then the media moves on, we move on. And yet our world is in constant need of mercy. And I believe deep down, every one of us wants to be that way. We want to be regularly merciful towards others. We don't want that Christmas spirit to just be about the Christmas spirit and disappear in January. We want to be people who are forgiving debts regularly. We want to be people who are giving of ourselves to others because we see a world in need, and we want to be like that. So how do we actually find 
a motivation for mercy that is beyond Christmas feeling, that is beyond guilt, you know, which is effective in the short term, not in the long term, or pride, which actually tends to corrupt the person who is even being merciful. Is there something else, something better, deeper, more lasting that this world needs, that you and I need to become actually people who are merciful? And in the passage that was read for us by Steve from the book of Luke, I believe there's a clue, there's a key, in fact, that turns this whole conversation about mercy in a very different direction. And it actually is appropriate to consider it at just this time. The Advent season, as Tony said to us, is an anticipation of the arrival of Jesus, his coming. Not just that he came once, but that he comes still to those who are open to him. And when Jesus came, the announcements of his birth, in a sense, were recalled by some of the gospel writers, and they recalled passages like that one that Jesus read, that Steve read, from Isaiah, which is a prophet, you know, 700 years before, who were telling about a day when someone would come to bring mercy in a lasting way. In fact, many of the Christmas carols and hymns that we sing are taken from those prophetic verses, those things that were spoken about the someday one day that a, a son would come. You know, in Isaiah 9, it says, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. And things will change when he comes. And the passage in Isaiah that Jesus quoted was saying, someday peace will come. Good news for the poor. Freedom for the captives. Release from darkness for those who are being oppressed. And sight, the recovery of sight for the blind. It was the passage in Isaiah was a part of a whole section of saying, one day someone will come to save us, to bring true, lasting, deep, profound, life-changing mercy to the world that desperately needs it. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and in, in this passage that Steve read for us, it's part of the opening part of his ministry where really he, he, he goes public. And one of the first things he does is he, he comes to the synagogue in his, in his hometown and it was common for those who were considered to be people who were teachers or whatever to come up and read sections of scripture that they would decide what they wanted to read, and then they would sit down and teach about it. And so Jesus comes into these, obviously been invited into the synagogue to read, and he goes to the Old Testament scriptures, and it said he, he asked for, he looked for the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this passage, which would have been loaded with expectation for them of, of someday, one day, something's going to change. Now, in fact, this was a 700-year-old writing. We were talking with our kids this week about Advent. How many people do you think gave up waiting by the 700th year? You know, they would have told the stories from generation to generation, but maybe the stories would have had a little less. Maybe the, the father who told them initially around Isaiah's time was repeating what Isaiah was saying, was full of hope. But his son was a little, had a little less hope 70 years later when he told his kids that story, and that son a little less and a little less. And so Jesus comes and finds his passage, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Isaiah was, was kind of speaking about somebody one day who would say this, because he has anointed me, and he's, in other words, he's selected me to bring good news to the poor, to bring freedom for the captive, to release from darkness the ones who are being oppressed, and to give sight to the blind. He reads that passage, they all would have known it. He folds it up, sits down, and they all look at him for what he's going to say about the passage, and he says this, today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Now, we, don't, we know now what he meant. I don't know what they all thought about it, but there was an initial positive reaction to it. Let's read what their reaction to because in their reaction is a clue, a key for us on this whole thing about mercy. Luke 4, 
22 to 30. So he says this, all spoke well of him. So they liked whatever else he said in the sermon, they liked it. And were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. In other words, wow, this is, we know that he was a carpenter's son. How, how does he know how to teach like this? He's not a son of a rabbi. How does he teach like this? Jesus said to them, he keeps going. So they liked the first part of the sermon, but he keeps going. Watch this. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum, because he's in his hometown there. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three years, three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them in Israel, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, outside of Israel. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, a non-Israelite. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What happened in that sermon gone really bad? The things preachers pray will never happen in their own churches, right? They were so delighted and moved by what he said about the spirit of the sovereign Lord coming to release the poor and bring freedom for the captives and open the eyes of the blind. And then as he kept talking, they liked him less and less to the point where they were so angry with what he was saying and implying that they were ready to kill him and in fact tried to. What transitioned in that statement? What did they like and then suddenly didn't like? Jesus basically said, I have come and my coming is good news. Because those who need what I bring are finally going to get it. There's going to be freedom. Now, what they would have heard with their ears was someone's going to come and destroy Rome because Rome had crushed Israel under its thumb, under its heel, grinding into the ground, heavy taxes, a violent, brutal regime. And so they were thinking, oh, freedom for the captives. Yeah, that's us. You're going to overthrow Rome. You're going to get us our money back. You're going to release us this political, religious, economic, social freedom. That's what they have heard, would have heard. But instead, he starts to say, you eventually are going to reject me. And in fact, when they finally said, physician, heal thyself, it was on the cross, right? You saved others, you can't save yourself. They threw his mercy back in his face at the time when they had finally, what they couldn't accomplish here, they were able to do three years later, which was to kill him. What happened? This was good news, and they agreed, and suddenly they were so angry to kill him. He basically said, what I bring, you will reject. Why would they reject it? Why would they suddenly go? Because he said, you know what? I'm actually going to end up going to people other than you. And it was very, it was very ethnocentrism was alive and well at that time. Each people kind of huddling in together to protect their own. And Israel certainly thought, well, God's going to save us Israelites from all these other people. They did not like foreigners. They hated Rome. And so when Jesus starts to say, I'm bringing good news, but you're actually going to reject it, and so I'm going to go elsewhere. And they were so mad that he would have talked about these other people groups, these other places that he was going to go, that they were going to kill him. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
How did he know? Why were they going to reject what he brought? They loved the message that he said, freedom. Why would they reject it? Because it would not come in the way that they were hoping it would come. What they wanted from him was not what he was going to give them. He didn't seem interested in the political issues of the day. He wasn't somebody who was trying to get their money back for them. In fact, what he was continually reminding them was the thing that eventually they had to cover their ears because they were so sick of hearing, which is this. And it was Jesus turning mercy on his head. Jesus exposes the truth about mercy, and it's this. If you know you need it, you're delighted. If you don't think you need it, you're going to be offended. This is exactly what happened. The mercy Jesus brought to them, the ones who came around his manger scene right at the beginning of his life and seemed to continue to gravitationally move towards him were the poor, the oppressed, the broken, the marginalized, the outcast, the foreigners. Those were the ones that moved towards him that loved what he had to say. The ones who became increasingly offended by him were the ones who were fine. They did not like that he continued to insist that they were poor in spirit. That there was something in them that was lacking. There was something in them that was empty and just like a poor person who hasn't eaten for a long time is hungry. Jesus said, blessed are those who have hunger pains for what is right. You are poor in spirit. The people who were offended by him the most were the ones who the society thought were good, the wealthy, the religious leaders. He said, you're poor in spirit. You're lacking something in your soul. And they didn't like that. He said, you are oppressed. An oppressed person is too weak to throw off those who are stronger than. He said, you are actually weak. You come off as having it all together. You come off as in control. You come off as you know how life works, but actually you are oppressed, you are weak, you are powerless to help yourself. And you are also imprisoned. The ones I have come for to bring freedom for the captives, you are imprisoned by sin, by your own pride, by your own sense that you have it all together. Remember somebody brought someone who was sick to him? Instead of healing him, he first said, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because the greater tragedy, the thing that had the greater grip on this paralytic's life was not the paralysis in his body, but the grip of sin. And so Jesus isn't going to deal with that first. And they were offended that he would even say that. You, who, who are you that you have the right to talk to people like that, to forgive sins, to say that we have sinned? And then he said, you are blind. And that's actually the worst part of it all because all of this, you don't actually even see that you are poor, that you are oppressed, that you are imprisoned. He said, blessed are those who are blind and know it and ask for sight. The ones who are really in trouble who think, are the ones who think they see. 
Over and over and over, he gave this message directly and indirectly to the point that they were so offended by it that they killed him. How dare you imply this? And so Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry, the ones who will accept me are the ones who realize they have a poverty of spirit. They have something in them that is lacking, that there is a character within them that is impoverished, that there's something not right. The ones who will move towards me are those who have an ache for something more than this life can give. The ones who will move towards me are the ones who realize, yeah, actually, I say I'm fine, but I'm really not fine. The ones who say they're fine are the ones who are most offended by mercy offered to them. Because it's one thing to feel magnanimous and generous to someone else. It's another thing to say, I'm the one in desperate need. You know, last week we had a baptism service, right? And Chris bravely went first, and two others came forward. And at the end of the service, May, who's in our home group, came down, and she's like, BJ, can I get baptized? And so I started talking about the next service. She's like, no, 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 right now. And the tank was the only thing left on the stage. The water was still there, and it was still warm. And so the rest of our home group gathered around, and a bunch of you were here, and we just gathered around. And she said, oh, I want to say something first. She said, I, I realized I went through life saying I'm fine, I'm fine. But I wasn't fine. And I knew I wasn't fine, but I thought you just have to say you're fine, even though you're not fine. And then I started to realize I'm not fine, and I need Jesus. I thought, that's beautiful. That's the gospel right there. This was the good news that Jesus was bringing to the poor in spirit, to the ones who say, I'm not going to pretend anymore that I'm fine because I'm not. And I need what you have. These are the ones that moved towards Jesus and the ones who insisted on holding their face the way it was got increasingly offended at his insistence that in fact they were poor, they were oppressed, they were imprisoned, and worst of all, they were too blind to even see. The ones who said, okay, tell me more, tell me more, were the ones who received mercy. And that's why that is the twist on mercy is that those who think they need it are delighted at its offer. The fact that Jesus could come and get, fill our spiritual stomachs in a way that nothing of earth could. That Jesus could come and say, you're weak, but I am strong for you. You are powerless to change yourself, but I have come that you might have life. You are powerless to set yourself free from your addictions to shopping, to drinking, to wasting too much time watching TV, to talking about other people behind their back, to leisure, to working too hard, to money, to possessions. You are powerless. Don't you realize you are imprisoned by these things? You chase after them, chase after them, serve them like they're your Lord and Master, and they never give you what they promise. If you will see that this is where you're at, I can give you better. I have more. I am a Lord of your life that needs nothing from you and wants everything for you. This is the gospel of mercy. And there were some for whom he said, you're right. The worst about me is known. Now give me what you have. And there were others who said, I don't like that what you're insinuating about me. And isn't that true, friends? Isn't that why some run towards Jesus and others are offended by him? And maybe they put up questions about, well, I'm not sure if Jesus really existed. It's stunning to me that people actually historically could even still say that. And there are people who say, I don't think he really existed. Mind-blowing. 
That's nothing to do with Jesus. That's just historically ignorant. But to say, oh, I don't think he exists, or I read this article in Time Magazine, or I'm not sure if he rose from the dead or whatever, often it's just saying, I don't want someone in my life who will tell me that I need saving. I'm my own savior. I have one throne in my heart, and there's room for only one king. If it's going to be me or you, kings are going to fight. Oftentimes, what, and let's be honest, that's what we resist the most about Jesus coming to us is saying, I want to change you, that thing in your life that you need. The most beautiful moment in life is when we're able to receive mercy. The most terrible one is the moment right before it where, we're, where our emptiness is exposed, where our hunger pains are acknowledged, where we realize I'm actually imprisoned. It is the worst moment of our lives. It's the one we avoid. It's the one we don't want to think about. It's the one we resist. It's the one we try to cover up from others or at least from ourselves. And when Jesus comes, that's the terrifying closeness of Christ that says, I have come for the poor, for the imprisoned, for the oppressed, for the blind. I have come for you. Why is this the key to mercy? Why is mercy the gift that it's more blessed to receive than give? Why is mercy the gift that you have to receive first in order to give? Why? Because if you live your life like this, if you understand that when Jesus said, I bring good news to the poor, I bring freedom to the captive, I bring sight to the blind, and you say, that's me. When you live like that, pride begins to disappear in your life. Right? When you really acknowledge, it's not about all these other people who are saying this about me or that about me or who are doing this to me or that. All of that begins to disappear and it's me and Jesus and I realize, you're right, it's me. All the pride begins to go out of my life. And what I get full of is his mercy. Not once, over and over and over I realize I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to eat other things and try to fill myself up with things that don't satisfy. And the more that I receive his mercy, what do I have to show others is mercy. Why, I can be gracious to others who I also see are in prison just like me, and their annoying habits or their addictions don't bother me anymore because I am the same as them. I see the world through the eyes of God who sees all of us in common, and some of us are just better at hiding it than others. When I begin to acknowledge that, I see my brothers and sisters on the same plane, at, best, at worst, and at best I see really I'm worse off than most of them. I have an impoverished spirit and a soul. And yes, it's good to give money to those who are physically hungry. But let me not do it in a way that misunderstands the fact that I have emptiness, I have lack that I need from others. The more that I see mercy this way, the more merciful I will be because I have mercy to give. And now I'm not doing it from a place of guilt. Now I'm not doing it from a place, place of pride, but I'm doing it from a place of fullness where I have so received the mercy of Jesus to me. And I've realized, yes, I lack, I have addictions, I have pain, I have oppression, and I'm blind to these things. And Jesus is setting me free. That will make us the most merciful people on the planet. That's why this is the beginning of true mercy. It's the beginning. It's what the Christmas story signals to us. And friends, let us not lose or, or be contemptuous towards the story because of its familiarity to us. Oh, yes, we've heard, oh, the songs are familiar. Oh, I've heard this story before. Yeah, but it's got to play itself out in your life again this year. It's got to remind you again. It's got to bring you back to the manger and say, here I am with all the poor, impoverished, imprisoned people. I'm right here with them, Jesus. 
Let Christmas usher in the reminder that you and I are in desperate need of mercy, and Jesus has come for us. In the 1986 movie, The Mission, it's the story of a Jesuit priest played by Jeremy Irons who goes deep into the South American jungle to an Indian tribe to bring them the gospel message of Jesus. And in that process, he meets a slave trader played by Robert De Niro. And De Niro's character is poaching some of these Indian people and selling them in the slave trade. And they have a bit of a standoff, and the Lord begins to expose the, the deadness of De Niro's heart and his wickedness as a slave trader. And so he begins to turn around, and he tries to pay penance and basically pay back what he's done. And so he carries around this burden with him, this bag of junk and metal and all the stuff that he used to use in his slave trade, and he carries it around with him, trying to pay back the wrongs that he has done. And there's a scene in the movie where they, he suddenly meets the Jesuit priests who have been warmly welcomed by the people, and the Indian people suddenly realize that with them is this man who had been poaching them and slave trade. I want you to watch what happens when they come face to face. And I watched that again this week, and that, that's only in the middle of the movie, so I haven't ruined it for you. If you haven't seen it, you gotta, you gotta get it. It's an amazing story um, of mercy. And it gave me a picture, I think, of, what, of how beautiful the mercy of Jesus is to us. First of all, when we see ourselves as the ones carrying the burden. It changes how we see the world. It places us in an extremely vulnerable position to everyone else who is above us. And to see that what Jesus has done for us and is still doing, because I get it, it's not fully happened in any one of our lives yet, is cutting away the burdens that we carry around us. And that true mercy comes when we see ourselves, that's exactly where we have been, that's exactly who we are. And in Jesus, all of that is thrown off of us. It no longer is our identity anymore. But the most beautiful thing I think about that picture, and I think it's so descriptive of how that happens, is it happens in a community just like this. And in fact, it's other people who play the role and have the ability to describe to us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. When someone else forgives us for our sins, we are set. It's one thing to know that Jesus forgives us. It's another thing to see the person who we have wounded forgive us. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I know Jesus sets me free. It's another thing for another person to say, in Jesus you are free to kick that burden off the cliff for us. I'm convinced that some of the freedom that you and I lack is because we don't actually live vulnerable enough in community to hear somebody else forgive us. And we think and we know that God does, but somehow it has not been internalized until someone with skin on does it for us. And the reason that is safe is because we are all the same. When we admit together that we are all people in need of mercy, now there's no more need to pretend and protect because somehow you're better than me. If I think you are, you're just better at hiding it than I am. <laughs> that in the freedom of this gospel community, we are able to do this together. And so here's the Advent prayer that I want to give you as you go into this season. It's this, Jesus, show me my need. I know that's a scary prayer to pray. Maybe some of you are very aware of it. But 
to acknowledge there's sometimes a blindness in our lives to what we really need, to who we really are, to what's really going on, to say, okay, Jesus, show me my true need for you. Show me the emptiness of my spirit that I have. Show me where, where I'm oppressed, where I'm actually in prison. Show me where I'm blind. It's a scary prayer. Make me humble enough to ask you and others for mercy. The humility comes when we ask each other for help. And I'm actually convinced, you know, as I wrote this down, as I prayed for us as a church, that true mercy and freedom will not come into our lives until we're willing actually to tell one another about our need. And so maybe you've been resisting it, saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, even though you know you're not fine. So for some of you who think you're fine, you need to pray the first part of that prayer. For some of you that know you're not, you need to pray the second part. Jesus, help me ask for mercy. Help me ask someone else. Help me just, maybe it's a forgiveness that I need. Maybe it's just someone to come alongside me because I can't, I'm not doing this alone anymore. Today we're going to share communion, the communion table together. The elements, the bread and the cup, which represent the body and the blood of Jesus. And they represent both aspects of this prayer, both aspects of mercy. See, the communion table is a place where we come empty-handed. We come, in a sense, hungry and walk away full. We don't qualify ourselves to be at the table. The only thing that qualifies us to be there is that we are aware of our need for Jesus. We don't need to bring anything else with us except empty hands. It is a recognition of the mercy that Jesus offers us, that we are the ones poor, oppressed, blind, and imprisoned. But it's also shared together, like that we share from the same loaf. So it reminds us, the brother, the sister that's at the table with me that shares together, they're in the same boat as I am. So I'm free to ask them for mercy. They're not going to judge me. They're not going to look down on me because they're at the table too. They've come empty-handed too. And so that's why we practice this together to remind ourselves who Jesus is and who his body is. I bless you this morning. The benediction means good word. And trust me, this is a good word, <laughs> what I'm about to say. Is that, that terrifying moment when we fall on our knees, even like that character did in the movie, and realize I have nothing left. It is terrifying, but don't run from it. Take it as the moment to say, okay, Jesus, you're going to give me more than I could ever ask or imagine. That this Christmas, this season, would be a reminder to you not just of your need, but of his incredible provision. So when it comes, don't run from it. Say, well, Jesus, this is the moment. This is the moment where I get to see you and your love and your grace for me. Did you receive that? Amen.